trains would go by cantaloupes and I'd hear the whistle. And it became one of my triggers later on after I left a residential school. The first things they did was they took us down to our cleansing room, cut off our hair. Then they deloused us. Then they scrubbed us down with disinfectant like we were diseased animals. The truth is, we've got a long way to go to make things right with Indigenous peoples. But if we all pledge ourselves to doing the work, we can achieve reconciliation. I've always admired leaders who fight social injustice and change the world, but with nonviolent protests. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Emmeline Pankhurst fighting for a woman's right to vote, Rosa Parks for segregation, and Nelson Mandela when he was let out of prison and believed in the United South Africa, even though the minority had incarcerated him for 28 years. One that stands out in our country is Phil Fontaine, an Indigenous Canadian leader and activist who served as the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations for an unprecedented three times. Phil was one of the first to speak publicly about the physical, psychological, and sexual abuse he received while a student in the residential schools. And under his leadership, the AFN negotiated both the Kelowna Accord and the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement. And in 2017, he launched Recognition to Action, a campaign to legally recognize Indigenous people as founding nations of Canada. I would be the last to suggest that it's going to be simple and straightforward and that it's going to be e easy to uh, to achieve reconciliation. In fact, it's going to be a, a very difficult, arduous journey. There will be no easy moments because to bring about reconciliation, we are all, in one way or another, are going to have to bear our souls. We're going to have to open up our minds, and most importantly, we're going to have to open up our hearts to make it possible for us to come to a good place. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Phil Fontaine, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you. Phil, I'd love to start with your early life. Where were you born? I'm from Fort Alexander. That's the English name of my community. Uh, Saging is the Ojibwe name of where I'm from. I grew up there. I come from a large family of 12, 10 boys, two girls. Uh, our mother and father also both came from large families. We were raised Catholic. All of my siblings and I, my two sisters, my mom and dad, they all attended the same residential school that, uh, that we were at. It was called the Fort Alexander Indian Residential School. And then at grade eight, I transferred to Winnipeg to a residential school uh, in the city. And I spent three years there. Before I get to the schools, what, being around such a large family and so many cousins, what do you feel is the best lessons you learned from either your parents or your elders or just growing up with, you know, surrounded by family? Well, we had a large family. We had a lot of relatives and we had a big house. So uh, not only us kids uh, lived in the, in, in the house, but we had relatives that would come in and stay for uh, varying periods. So, And that was only possible because uh, our parents were, were generous people. They did what they could to uh, support uh, other people. 
people other than us is what I meant to say. Part of that was the fact that uh, a number of the of the older siblings were in residential school. So when they were off, we had a bit more room in the house. They were always, always coming and going. Generosity is a key word for your parents. But as you said, when they were off at residential school, Back then, was that just expected? That was just the way you grew up, that you were going to be sent off to these schools? Was there any, at that time, you know, questions about it? Or was it just the way the norms of society? It was just the way things were. It never entered my mind that uh, I'd be leaving home and uh, that I would be off to residential school. And I'd spent the next 10 years in two residential schools with, uh, in my view, limited uh, uh, contact with uh, my family. I say limited because our parents were allowed to visit us on Sundays for a couple of hours. Then we, we'd be let off for holidays for a couple of months, a week in Easter, a week at Christmas. That's the way it was. And uh, the 10 years I spent in two residential schools, there was just very limited time with my family. And it was even more difficult when I moved to Winnipeg because it's a, it was a bit much for my mom to come into Winnipeg and uh, and visit. When I was at the school in Winnipeg, that's where I stayed. On occasion, would get home. That was probably one of the most difficult experiences I've had. We had a large family. We were close. We had relatives, a large extended family. I enjoyed my time as a young boy growing up in this large family. And all of a sudden, I'm removed from that setting and placed in a play, uh, in a school where I became disconnected from my family. Even with the siblings I, I uh, was in school with, I seldom saw them except maybe at uh, mealtime because they, they occupied one end of the, of the residential school. The small boys occupied another end of the school. So very limited contact with them as well. And do you think that was the intention that they were trying to remove you from the sense of family and culture and everything that comes with being part of a community and kind of forcing you into their community so that would give them an opportunity to maybe shape the way you think and feel and behave? Well, clearly this was uh, government policy. The policy was assimilation. And in this case, it was about the eradication of any sense of Indianness in the children. And so the best way to do that was to remove any possibility of influence from the family. And so separation was key to that. And that was a stated policy. As you would come home after a couple of years in residential school, did you struggle with who you were? Were you Indigenous or were you part of the residential school? Did it, did it impact you in terms of just your feeling that you belong somewhere? I wanted my community to be the place where I felt most comfortable. But uh, it was difficult for me because I'd been away for 10 years. I spent two years in a public school. Most of the students there were non-Native, non-Indigenous. I had to make my mark somehow. And it was difficult for me to uh, achieve any sense of uh, belonging because we were different. We were still completely different. I lived on the reserve uh, the students I attended the high school with lived in town or company town and then the village next to it. And then, uh, you know, there were a number of towns uh, on the highway. That separation uh, was the result of uh, actually being different from one another. At least that was the sense. 
even though we ended up playing hockey on the same team or playing fastball, that would bring us together for brief intervals, right? Brief times. But at the end of the day, we went home on to the reserve, poor people, they'd go home to their company town where they lived in, by our standards, pretty posh surroundings. Even though when, when I reflect back now, and I've been back to the area a number of times, those company houses uh, were nothing special. But to us, they were really quite a difference for us. We envied, the, at least I did, envied the uh, young men and young women that I attended high school with because everything seemed to be uh, possible for them and it wasn't for us. They often say that racism is, never exists in a child until they're taught that by their parents. Did you feel in that sense of where I live versus they live that the parents were encouraging their children not to hang out other than the sports field? Or was it just, we just, you just got on with life? I can't minimize my residential school experience where we were reminded that we were different, that we were savage. You know, and uh, savage was not a was not a kind word for us. And what that meant was that if we were going to be seen as successful and it's achieving some self worth, we had to let go of being a savage and be like the uh, non native people, the non Indians. It was near impossible for us to to uh, to bridge the gap. Since time immemorial, we've flourished on Turtle Island. This is our home, where we've raised generations upon generations of our children. Our languages, cultures, and ceremonies define who we are and our connection to this land. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Phil Fontaine. He's a trailblazer, a positive force of change, and a social justice warrior. Phil, you're one of the first to tell the stories of the physical and psychological and sexual abuse from residential schools. Instead of whispering, you wanted the world to know. What motivated you to finally open this door and let the world know what was really happening behind the closed doors of these schools? Well, I had uh, been troubled for, for a number of years by my experience at, at residential school. These weren't happy times for me. I knew it wasn't happy times for a vast majority of the students. I mean, we had fun, obviously. We were, we were kids, young boys. It makes sense that we would enjoy some of our time together playing sports, going to a class together and sleeping in the same dorm and whatnot, but uh, we were reminded so often that uh, we were different. We were at these schools out of the kindness of the people that ran these schools, the priests and the nuns. As I said earlier, when they were angry with us, when uh, the nuns were angry with us, at least those that looked after us, they would uh, call us savage, which meant that we were less than, when I think about the word, less than human, right? People that lived in the bush. And we were bush people, in effect. The disruption in my, in my family, the, the, the way that the residential school experience fractured my, my sense of family. And then to top it off, to be, to be abused 
by people that ran these schools, people that were the closest thing to God in our, in our time, it was a bit too much for me. And I knew that was so for many, many of uh, the survivors. I looked at this experience as a big black cloud that hung over our communities. I firmly believe that if we were going to move forward and if we were going to be able to develop a vision for our future, we were going to have to get rid of this problem. So when I spoke out publicly about this in 1990, my colleagues weren't necessarily very supportive of this. They took the view that sexual abuse, uh, psychological abuse, uh, physical abuse, these were not matters that important enough to be considered at chiefs' assemblies and uh, such gatherings. That was for some, some, some other place, some other time. I had to stand my ground. I believed I was right. I believed I was right in saying that we needed a, an inquiry. We needed the, the, the residential school experience that had to be recorded for history. We needed an apology. Is that what motivated you to get into politics, that you realized that if you were going to make an impact, if you were going to be a force of positive change, if you were going to find a way to try to reconcile the past, that you had to do it through a political base? Well, clearly, uh, the best opportunity that we had as a peoples, as individuals, to effect change was to act through a collective. In my own experience, it was the chiefs. And uh, I was elected chief at a young age in my community. And so I had this opportunity to engage with uh, chiefs in other uh, parts of the province. Our perspective was very clear. We knew that the best way to bring about change was to take control over our lives. But in order to do that in the most effective way possible, we have to deal with these experiences that, that seem to be a major impediment to getting things done right. And so I took, some people considered it pretty risky uh, to talk publicly about uh, something that is so shameful and personal, but I believed that it was the right thing to do. I learned after my first public intervention, when I met with, uh, for example, a couple of women chiefs that were in tears to hear someone talk about something that happened to them as well. Talk about your political trajectory. I mean, you become a very young chief. I know there's there's politics in your family. I've read your backstory, but, you, you know, very young chief of your province. Quite soon, you're becoming one of the real political forces within your entire community. You know, 1997, you're elected the national chief of the assembly. How did you move so quickly? What did people see in you did you ever feel like you were an imposter along the way? Because that's a very young age to be taking on that level of responsibility and influence. I, I never actually believed that uh, I was this uh, influencer. I never considered myself as uh, a high achiever. I never considered myself as someone that inspired others. I just actually believed that I understood the challenges and impediments ahead of us and what we needed to do together to Cast to the side, cast to the side. For example, when I was a young chief, we got rid of the Indian agent who used to occupy an office on our reserve. And that was the last Indian agent we ever had to deal with. I decided with my council that it was time for us to take full control over the, over the affairs of our community. And on a larger scale, province-wide and, and then nationally, all-consuming objective was to, as much as possible, 
exercise self-determination, self-rule, self-government, however one wants to describe it. To do that, we needed to change the base of our communities. And the one missing ingredient was uh, the ability to create our own wealth, the ability to manage our own uh, wealth if we created wealth. That was a, ch a challenge back then. It remains a challenge today because if you look at Canada, the most impoverished segment of Canadian society is the indigenous community. And so one of the biggest challenges we face as a country is to eradicate mass poverty in First Nation communities. And there are a number of uh, factors uh, that play into that. At the height of the residential school experience, keeping in mind there are 150,000 uh, of our people that attended residential schools over the years that they existed, last one being closed in 1996, 12,000. Today we have 30,000 of our children in uh, child welfare, in the care of uh, families other than their own families, being in communities other than their own communities. That's one of the manifestations of poverty. And another major piece there is dependence on, on government to sustain too many of our communities. We need to be able to revitalize our own economies, First Nation economies, so that we can look after ourselves better than uh, government has managed to do over years and years and years. So this year, there'll be 300,000 Indigenous children turning 15. It's a big part of our economy. What can we do to break this cycle of poverty and let you do what you say you want to do is self-determination, create our own wealth, create our own prosperity. What's the missing part of all of that? There are really two pieces. One, of course, is to ensure that our young people have access to the best education possible. That includes the ability to either retrieve their languages or develop the capacity to speak their languages to be able to practice our, our culture, to treat our culture as something special and important to our communities, and to honor our traditions, whether we're talking about the sweat lodge or the Sundance or potlatch or uh, powwows. These weren't a part of our, our lives growing up and, and spending time in residential school. The potlatch was outlawed. The Sundance pr was prohibited. Women in our communities couldn't hold public office until 1951. We couldn't retain the services of lawyers to defend our land rights. We are busy trying to fix those problems. And the best way to do that is to ensure that our children, uh, as I said, have access to, to the best education possible, whether that occurs in our communities or in urban centers. Winnipeg has the largest indigenous population of any urban centre in Canada. So that means that we have a lot of young people in places like Winnipeg. I do know that more and more of our young people are graduating from high school and going on to college and university. The other day, the University of Manitoba celebrated with a big powwow the graduation of 415 indigenous students from that university. You compare that with 1950 when we had maybe 10 in university in the entire country. So there's been a dramatic shift, but we haven't gone far enough and fast enough. When we come back, Phil Fontaine talks about what he believes is the pivotal moment 
where we had an opportunity to move the conversation forward. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Powering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. The importance of developing and, as I said, and revitalizing our, our economies. And that's possible, entirely possible, because we occupy some of the most valuable real estate in the entire country, especially if you talk about the resource sector, mining, uh, oil and gas, logging. All of that wealth is in the ground, and most of it is on First Nations lands and territories. We're going to have to figure out a way of engaging in a very respectful and meaningful way with uh, with resource companies. And, and granted, that's happening in a number of places, but not uh, extensively enough or fast enough. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back. My guest today is Phil Fontaine, a trailblazer, a defender of Indigenous First Nation rights, and someone I'm proud to call a Canadian. Do you feel you have a seat at the table when our political leaders look at resources as a way to make political gain? Do you feel that they're including you in those conversations because ultimately they impact your livelihood as well? Well, if you look at uh, the way Canada was uh, established, they recognized only two founding nations, the French and the English, a confederation. Our presence was absent. We would be much better off as a nation if we had been included right from the start. Today, we still face the same kind of challenge. How do we ensure that Canada goes beyond paying lip service to bringing about badly needed change in our communities? And indeed, wherever Indigenous people can be found in Canada, whether urban centers or reserve communities or in the remote parts of of Canada. There has to be a full engagement. Can't be half-hearted. It can't be something that people talk about in a speech or in a gathering of uh, political power brokers. It has to be a real effort and it has to be sustained. One question I had as you're talking about powwow and the Sundance, Sweat Lodge, do you think some of the things that you learn as a culture, being on this, this continent for many, many years, do you think some of what you know could be brought to our community to make us more connected? Because I find Canada is dividing. Is there jewels that exist within your culture that we should be taught so that we can become a better nation? We would become a better country, a country that's whole rather than the many fractures that exist in Canada. If Canadians were better informed and better educated about Indigenous people, First Nations people, the best avenue for public education and public information is through our schools. We may be different in some some ways, but at the end of the day, we're all the same. So Canadians have to learn about themselves. And the way they learn about themselves is to learn about us. Because Canada is not just about the French and the English. Canada is all of 
us, including Aboriginal people, First Nations people. And only recently have there been baby steps taken to have institutions reflect our people, including Indigenous legal traditions, Indigenous law. Phil, I was reading a lot about you. In some ways, you remind me of Nelson Mandela. I went to Robben Island when I was in South Africa, carcerated in prison, but when he's released and elected, he becomes president. He wants a South Africa that includes all. He wants reconciliation. And reading about your experiences at residential school, what you took forward with it, at the same time, I've also heard you say, but within that school, I did get an education. There was a slight silver lining in a very dark cloud. How is it that you could find that? What advice can you give to others that there's opportunity everywhere? It's important that you continue to realize that so that there's some sense of positivity moving forward. There isn't anyone in my estimation that can be ever compared to Nelson Mandela. But as far as uh, my own life, I was not unique, one of many uh, thousands. That experience at the residential school and then when I got out to, in, uh, to interact and engage with government officials, the Indian agent, other uh, folks that uh, ran the lives of our people, it made me angry. I was an angry young man, bitter, till I finally came to my senses and realized that that wasn't very productive. I had to be uh, more respectful recognize that the people I was engaging with had to carry out their own responsibilities. I changed my approach, managed my anger better. I tried to deal with my, my sense of bitterness. I still struggle with, uh, with my past. I mean, I'm just as passionate as I was when I was younger, but uh, with a little more sense than, than I possessed back then. Am I able to uh, influence? Uh, change as much as I could back then, today. Well, in different ways, maybe. But uh, I'm just very uh, appreciative and thankful that I've lived my life the way I have. Moving from being a drunk to being a sober guy, last 45 years of my life, I haven't touched a drop of alcohol yet. I'm extremely proud of that. Uh, do I broadcast that? Very seldom. And I do appreciate you sharing that because I've talked to a lot of people with mental health issues, with addiction issues. And when people like you of your stature uh, come out and talk about pride and talk about the accomplishment of, of wrestling that, I think it's an important thing. Two important things happen to you in your life among many, but 2009, you go and meet Pope Benedict, order to obtain an apology. And then this year, you went off to meet Pope Francis for the same mandate. So what happened in 2009 and why did it take so long for you to have another chance of going to the Vatican and making things right? There were different times, obviously. We dealt with the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops in 2009 and the president of the CCB was Archbishop Weisgerber, who was the Archbishop of Winnipeg. He was the one that worked the, the back rooms of the Vatican and uh, uh, convinced his, uh, the other bishops that we be invited to Rome to meet with Benedict in a, in a private audience. We went there, of course, hoping that Benedict XVI would, would apologize. That didn't happen. Were we disappointed? Yes, we were. 
But we didn't hold anyone responsible for that. I, I wasn't critical of Archbishop Weisgerber. It just became very obviously clear that uh, the Catholic Church wasn't yet prepared to acknowledge the harms that it, uh, it had inflicted on the survivors at these residential schools. There was little or no interest in Canada about residential schools. Very few people knew about residential schools. And so when that was over, I didn't want to leave anyone with the impression that we had failed. I thought that there would be another opportunity somewhere down the line and someone else would pick up the mantle and, and push this, this issue forward. Now we come to 2022. The circumstances are so different. The public have become much more aware of residential schools and abuse. They had the TRC, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, 94 calls to action, UNDRIP, legislation in the House of Commons, in Parliament, that recognizes our right to self-determination, our right to our own lands, our own languages, our own cultures. The pivotal moment, in my view, is the discovery of 215 unmarked graves in Kamloops. A devastating discovery has been made in Canada. The remains of 215 children have been found buried at the site of a former boarding school for Indigenous students. The school in British Columbia was part of... That shocked Canadians. World attention on not just the unmarked graves, but this whole story about residential schools. This, in effect, forced the Catholic Church in Canada through the Canadian Conference of Catholic Bishops to do something about this. We go to Rome hoping that the Pope would apologize. Desire really was to have Francis, Pope Francis, come to Canada and apologize on one of our territories or one of our communities. But we got better than that. Pope Francis in the general audience said, I am so very sorry. I am so uh, very sorry. A heartfelt expression from the church that was delivered by Pope Francis in an empathetic and caring way. I ask for God's forgiveness, and I want to say to you with all my heart, I am very sorry, and I join my brothers. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Phil Fontaine, someone who's worked tirelessly on behalf of Indigenous and First Nation rights. I've had two of my guests who are think of you as a trailblazer, someone they think have done so much for their community. They have questions for you, and I wanted to ask, ask you these questions. One is Sandy Boucher, who's met you. She works in the area of Canadian reconciliation. And she asks, With all your experience and wisdom, what do you think would be the one catalyst that is really going to put this country on the path to reconciliation? I would be very interested in hearing your answer. That moment will, will be when Canadian Parliament decides on behalf of the country to recognize our people as one of the founding peoples of, of Canada. So instead of two founding nations, we will have three. And the fact that we have this recognition will mean that we will be able to establish our own institutions that will 
cooperate and engage with the others. That'll be the moment. And it'll be a moment of truth for Canada. But I'm not sure that they're ready for that step. We've raised this issue many times over the last number of years, and uh, we heard crickets. We were told that Canada wasn't ready yet. Maybe next time when we celebrate, uh, what is it, 150 years, we will be able to celebrate in a more uh, uh, inclusive way than we are now. Why do you feel the country struggles with that? The country is not prepared to share power with uh, First Peoples in a meaningful way. And so we meet up with resistance. One of the arguments will be, and has been, just be like us. Become full citizens of Canada by embracing Canadian roles and Canadian authority, Canadian systems of government, whether they're provincial or municipal or the federal. And we have to keep reminding people that we had our own systems of government, our own way of life. We ask for nothing more. This notion of the recognition of the First Peoples as one of the founding nations is not meant to take away power from the existing system, but it's to add to the equation in a fair and just way so that the First Peoples also will be given this, this recognition so that when we celebrate Canada, we will be celebrating Canada as a whole. Canada, I admit, has taken some... Uh, Big steps, the appointment of uh, the governor, governor General, Mary Simon, the fact that we now have First Peoples as uh, premiers, uh, Northwest Territories, Nunavut in Ottawa, occupying major ministries. It's not something that we've been able to sustain. This is why this is such an important show for people to hear, because it's you make such compelling and common sense arguments and I think very often people's blinders are up because they fear change. As you say, they fear losing power. They rather not know the unknown versus embrace it. The second question I have is Jennifer, from Jennifer Menard Chan. She's an incredible entrepreneur. She is uh, doing so much for the Aboriginal community. I consider him a pioneer of his time who courageously shared the cycle of going from a victim to the abuser and back to shining light to break the cycle. So my question is, how exactly did you heal? Was it therapy, God giving back through your work, etc.? And are you fully healed today? Oh, I, I don't know if, if it's possible to be fully healed. It's possible to be in a better place than, for example, where I was uh, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. The most important consideration there is is uh, to move away from victimhood, not to regard oneself as a victim. Because if you're a victim, you place your fate in the hands of someone else. We have to move beyond that as a community and as individuals. If you're not a victim, what are you? Well, you're someone in control over your own life. When we talk about the residential school experience, we talk about survivors. 150,000 survivors, 70,000 are still with us today. It's important to acknowledge that difference. So, Phil, I always end my show with the three takeaways. The first one is you took control of your life. You learned how to manage your bitterness. You learned how to recognize the person across the table also had an agenda to stop being a drunk. And for 45 years now, you've been sober. So the first thing is just the ability to say, I am my own destiny. And I would build that to the second thing is just what you just ended with, which is the sense of 
moving away from being a victim. When you're a victim, you place your future in the hands of someone else. And I think that is such a powerful statement. And I think today in this life where so many forces of change are impacting us, so much negative news, so many things we can't control, it's easy to feel that way. But it's important that that you find a way to, to stand and be who you are. And the last thing is how you always move things forward with positivity. Your first meeting with the Pope, you said, you know, I didn't leave like we failed. We moved the agenda forward for someone else. And I'm glad it was you that was part of that conversation in 2022. And that you always look at ways in which we can get, you know, you're talking about the people graduating university, the amount of positive things that are happening. We're not where we need to be. We haven't got to to the point where we're going to get true reconciliation, but we're making positive change. And I think if all our political leaders embrace that conversation with positivity versus trying to divide and conquer us. I think we would be a better nation. And I hope that as we start learning more, as we open our minds to what exists in this country, which is this richness of people, French, English, Indigenous, Aboriginal, and immigrants, if we open our minds to what they bring in their knapsack in terms of culture, I would be a better person for it. So for all of that and more, I, I thank you so much for coming on Chatter That Matters. Thank you so much, Tony. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Joining me now on Chatter That Matters is Dale Sturgis. He's the head of RBC Indigenous Services. Dale, welcome back. Hey, Tony. Thanks. So what role do you feel Phil Fontaine has played over the years in trying to bring about reconciliation? In Canada. His contribution to the evolution of Canada and Canadian society is, is remarkable, and particularly as an advocate for Indigenous rights. He has, from the earliest time of his entry into political life, you know, been very focused around helping Canada understand what Indigenous rights are and, and to truly understand what reconciliation looks like. I mean, I think he was one of the first people actually to start you know, talking about this concept of reconciliation, which honestly is the most profound social movement of our time in Canada, I believe. One of the things that he told me in the interview was it could begin with the major statement that there's three official cultures in Canada, English, French, Indigenous. I think this goes back to what I call our origin story in Canada. You know, we have all been uh, accustomed to hearing the story about how Canada has been formed and how Canada was created. You know, the English and the French, they came, these two founding nations of Canada and so forth. And the whole existence of this place prior to the arrival of the Europeans has never factored in to uh, that origin story in any way. And of course, that's the real origin story. You know, this land, this territory, this place has been inhabited since time immemorial and it has supported sophisticated complex societies you know and european views and european history did not make room for any any of that part of the story phil fontaine has been involved with rbc for many years what role does he play we were the first uh, bank in canada to actually seek out you know an advisor in the capacity that phil has played to us and that is his role his role is to advise rbc around various matters that are important to indigenous society and and helping rbc understand what our obligation is in reconciliation for example how we can honor the trc calls to action particularly call to action number 92 in meaningful ways and we rely on phil to help guide us to help advise us um, to help um, bring some perspective uh, to all of the things that RBC undertakes 
with respect to how we work in meaningful ways with Indigenous nations. So what are you up to? You're, every time I talk to you, you've got a big plate. We've made um, a reconciliation learning program available to the public through a partnership with First Nations University, uh, and that's called Four Seasons of Reconciliation. Uh, we have a couple of key partnerships that we're, we're supporting. One is with Pow Wow Pitch. This is an entrepreneurial uh, program for Indigenous business owners, so we're uh, very much supportive of that, and we, we get involved with providing mentors and, and judges and real active participation in what Sunshine Tanasco is doing there with that event. The AFN is hosting their annual general assembly in July, and so we will be there for that. We're always looking for the ways in which we can really be prioritizing our work around supporting Indigenous economy, people and communities. Those are the three priorities, and everything we do has to tie back to one of those three things. Del Sturgis, it's always a pleasure to have you on Chatter That Matters. This path to reconciliation really is a lot of people coming together and focusing on the positivity. And I, I congratulate Phil Fontaine for doing it, but I also congratulate the work that your organization is doing as well. Thank you, Tony. Always a pleasure. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.